This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 49. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 49 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Audio Technica, and Universal Audio, and by my favorite friend, Coffee. Yep, that's the switch on my thermos mug here, working its action and uh, providing me with caffeinated enjoyment. Let's sample that now. Mmm. It doesn't get any better than that. That's good coffee. Anyways, now that I'm thoroughly caffeinated, that's probably my fourth one of those today. I have a great show, as usual. Don't I always say that? I got to stop saying that. I got a great show. I got a great show. I sound like Donald Trump. Um, we have a show on today that I think you're going to find enjoyable. And uh, I've got F. Reed Shippen. I'm going to call him Reed. I'm not going to call him F. Reed works with a lot of super cool people, a lot of very big people. He is based in Nashville. And he also works with a very diverse group of people, everybody from Eric Church to Robert Randolph and the Family Band, Death Cab for Cutie, Cage the Elephant, Backstreet Boys, India Ri. Yeah, man, he is all over the map here. And I tell you, just was sitting, uh, going online and checking out all the stuff that he's worked on. And oh, I tell you, you know, you get those moments where you listen to somebody else's work and you just think, someday... I'm going to be as good as that. He is so good. I just I love his work. I love his tones, his approach. And, um, you know, he's just, he, he does a really good job. And I'm really looking forward to uh, playing you this interview, which we're going to jump into shortly. So uh, let's see what else is going on. Hey, you know, I've been talking and, well, I did talk about it. I, I haven't talked about it lately. Um, I have kind of made my, not kind of, I have made my transition from, um, Pro Tools to Studio One, I finally was able to get a, first a copy of version two uh, to run on my old machine on my Mac Pro, which is like from 2006. That's what I'm working on right now uh, in Studio One version two. Love the software. They're not sponsoring the podcast in any way, but uh, I sure wish they would because I just am really thrilled with this software. Just the version two alone, man, I was just like, this is great. It's just, it's kind of a grown-up version uh, of a DAW. It's what, where it should be at. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and bash Pro Tools. I've used it for 18 years. It has been good to me. I'm just needing a change. And after 18 years, I feel like it's time. So why not, you know, changing cell phone carriers, DAWs, and all kinds of other things in my life, um, except my family, of course. Yeah, it's been great. And I got a great deal. Uh, I know I need to get out of 2006 with my Mac Pro. So I, I went on uh, Craigslist and I got a great deal on a 2012, because, you know, I just can't buy anything brand new, uh, 2012 Unibody uh, MacBook Pro in pristine condition. I paid like 725 bucks for it. Had 16 gigs of RAM. It's a slamming deal. It's just in beautiful condition. It's sitting here next to me. I'm actually going to use it to uh, talk to Reed here shortly, which is great. Uh, but it will become my new machine, which is great. So I'm going to, of course, put Studio One version three on there. And, you know, when you get a new machine, you got to, oh, 
you know how it is. You just got to put all the stuff on there. You got to set it up and it just, it's going to take me, it's going to take me several days, I'm going to say. And so it's a slow transition. One of the things that I uh, realized I needed to do was I needed to get my new, uh, I needed to get Sonarworks on the new machine. And I was like, Ooh, how are we going to do this? I'm going to need to uh, uh, figure out what the approach is there. And so I, I talked with Sonarworks and uh, they had reminded me that they, they sent me a little message and those guys are really helpful over there. So if you need to uh, get in touch, please do. Cause they're, they're very helpful. Anyways, they said, uh, by the way, we just launched reference three on windows. Now PC users can benefit from overhauled user interface and increased accuracy, which reference three offers. So you know, they said, you know, maybe some of the listeners are PC users uh, by choice or due to budgetary constraints or, you know, some people are ideologically opposed to using Macs, which, you know, I'm not, but I, I have my issues with Apple in terms of the cost of their machines and all that. And we could go down a deep rabbit hole of conversation, which I'm not, but I'll just say that I buy used for a reason and um, yeah, financially works in my favor. Yeah, if you're on a PC and you've been putting off getting Sonarworks, uh, this would be a good time to do it. So uh, make sure you check that out. That's it. Getting all my, um, getting my Apollo, getting my uh, uh, hooked up to the new machine. Had to order a card. The uh, God, Thunderbolt. That's another thing. Uh, now I get because my machine, my uh, Apollo has been on um, Firewire, so I needed a, uh, I needed a Thunderbolt card for it. So, you know, I got that and I'm going to be hooking that up, but man, Thunderbolt cables, what the hell? Those are expensive. Even at uh, monoprice.com, they're expensive. I was like, I'll just go to monoprice. Everything's inexpensive there, but you know, you go over there and there, you know, there's no major break there, but uh, you get a little bit of longer length, more length for the money, which is good. And just on that topic, of course, if I'm going to bring up Universal Audio, I'm, I should, of course, remind you that they have their deal going on with those Apollo Twins. So remember, if you get an Apollo Twin before the end of the year, before December 31st, they'll give you some free plugins. And you know me, I'm all about free and low cost and, you know, keeping the overhead low. So I've got the banner. It's on It's on the website. So make sure you go over there and you click on it and you're, you're thinking, oh, I want an Apollo Twin. Do that and you can uh, take advantage of those free plugins. And all you got to do is buy it and register it. You get the free plugins automatically. And I believe the way it works is if you already own those plugins for some reason, if you haven't got them, they'll just give you a coupon of equal value to get something else. So make sure you check that out. Click on the banner. That's that's the key in the whole thing. So um, yeah, going to get my uh, Apollo hooked up to the new machine and I'll be rocking. Yeah, it'd be great. What else? What else? What else? I think that's it. I think that's it. We're on episode uh, 49. Yeah, we're on episode 49, of course. So uh, yeah, next episode is going to be 50. So I've got a, uh, I've got a great guest coming up for number 50 as well. So look forward to that. So that's it. Let's get into the conversation with F. Reed Shippen here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So uh, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm I'm really happy to be talking to you. I've been thinking about having you on the show for a while, and obviously we've try, been trying to hook up. And I know you're busy, so uh, it's it's a bonus to get you on today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm I'm uh, I'm really excited about what you guys do, and it's uh, it's cool to be here. Uh, I follow your Facebook posts quite a bit. You have some very uh, excellent posts. Uh, 
politically, I think we're pretty much in the same same camp. You seem like a common sense kind of guy, and yeah, you know, actually, if if you want to start on that conversation, I actually saw a post on Facebook the other day from a friend of mine that said I got a little bit of pushback from clients because of my political posts on Facebook, so I'm backing off my views, and I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. It's my impression that you're uh, kind of a left to center kind of guy. You don't seem very extreme, but you also seem to uh, lean a little left in some areas and maybe a little more in the center on other areas that I've seen. I guess I, I you know, I, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to figure life out. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm more on a search for perspectives and just trying to understand all sides of an issue than I am about necessarily stating a position. Although uh, politically, I actually started as a conservative Republican. In fact, I'm still a registered Republican as far as voting goes. And I just I found myself being dragged more and more left on certain issues. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I kind of consider myself a moderate, although somebody online yesterday or a couple of days ago called me a progressive liberal idiot, quote unquote. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm a I, I like to think of it as I'm I'm on a mission to civilize. I'm just trying to figure out the best way to do things. I have no answers. On that note, I say welcome to the podcast. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you for having me. So I've seen you speak at a previous, it was either a Potluck Audio Con or a Tape Op Con. Oh, that was a while um, ago. That was a while ago. Yeah. And at the time I was like, who is F. Reed Shippen? I've never heard of him. What does the F stand for? Frank. Oh, okay. And you generally go by Reed, right? Although, again, somebody on the internet the other day suggested it stood for fucktard. <laughs> Man, you're just you're just blazing a trail. Yeah, of, uh... that guy that guy didn't like me. I guess I it it stands for Frank. It was my parents' idea, and it was also their idea to call me Reed, like from birth. So it was, I, as far as I can tell, it was just a plot to eminently confuse the DMV, credit card companies, and the IRS on a regular basis. It's a conspiracy on your part, yeah, I, I it's see. it's a vast conspiracy. So I was reading your Wikipedia page as a starting point, reading that you got your degree in um, business, a business degree, as well as a, um, a recording-type degree, and wondering, just starting with education, only because I just had a conversation with a, um, a very confused recording um, student yesterday, from a school I will not name. How do you feel about your recording education that you got and how it's impacted your world? And do you think you would have uh, been where you're at without it? That's I, I don't know that there's ever an answer to that question. Um, okay. Because how do you know otherwise? You know, I only know what I've been through. I loved the program at MTSU. Um, it was, I think, beneficial for me, but mainly because it, uh, it got me a lot of uh, studio time. I spent a lot of my time trying to scam as many hours in the studios as possible. And I was the guy who would, you know, they, they, they used to book them in four hour blocks. And, and I was the guy who was in the, like the midnight to 4am and the 4am to 8am sessions. So I could get as much studio time as possible. Now I had some really great teachers and I, I, uh, I had a, a particular one, this guy, John Hill, who was a mentor and introduced me to classical music and the Aspen Music Festival, where I went and worked a couple of years as a student. And that was hugely beneficial as far as ear training and, you know, learning that side of things goes. Um, but 
Yeah, I, I really think it depends on the individual. I think there's benefits to school. I think there's not benefits. It it, it kind of depends on the person and and what they're wanting to do. I I don't I don't know that I would necessarily say to anybody right now, hey, if you want to be an audio engineer, go get a four year college degree in audio engineering. A lot of times when students ask me, I say no, go get a d- degree in business or marketing or psychology or you know french literature and get chicks man like you can learn audio engineering diy like on the job and has your the business degree aspect of it do you think that that's helped you uh in navigating your recording world oh yeah definitely i think so i mean you 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 basically if you're if you're in the music business by and large you're self-employed and you know you either think strategically about it or you like hope for the best and you know there's not a whole lot of successful businesses based on hope for the best absolutely huh and then i see you also did uh, some internships at uh, some studios and internships man these days it's just like everybody and their dog and i and i'm sure you're one of them one of the people who gets um a million you know requests for hey man can i just come and wrap cables or internships um seem to be an interesting and challenging challenging on both sides challenging for those uh, those professional certain those professionals that uh, are bringing in interns and challenging for the the up and comer who's really trying to find their spot yeah what what was your experience as an intern well i think when i was doing it things were different there were still there was still a progression from intern to assistant to engineer um, you know, that doesn't necessarily exist anymore. So I, I, I found internships to be hugely beneficial. And, you know, I did as many as humanly possible and tried to get into as many situations. I just wanted to be in the studio. So I just tried to get into as many situations as possible. Nowadays, it's, you know, it's kind of different. There's fewer and fewer opportunities, I think, for for people to do that, which is probably uh, just bad. I mean, I, it's it's a it's a bummer that that doesn't exist anymore. And there's just so many. Like, you know, I'm not. I don't have the success that you have yet. I just get pounded with. I want to help out in any way I can. You know, anything you can do for me is, are the emails that I get like all the time. And it's part of me is like a little jaded about it, and some, and part of me is a little disheartened by it, and and also empathetic about it. So I'm not sure how you handle it. If you have a vetting process you you go through with people I, I think if you wait or i don't know I don't know how to say this without sounding hippy dippy you put the right energy out into the universe the the right people find you I've been insanely fortunate to work with some really great people who were interns that turned into assistants that have now turned into you know successful people in the business in their own right so and it and it they always seem to show up. I mean, you can kind of tell pretty quick if someone is the right fit or not. You know, if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, he talks about the fact that usually within the first 15 seconds, you can figure out unconsciously, you figure out whether someone's like a good fit or a good hang or, or whatever. And, and uh, I think the longer you do this, the more you start to, to figure those kind of people out. So I don't know, I've been pretty lucky as far as interns go. And I think it's part of our job to, to, find someone who's up and coming and, and kind of give them a little bit of a leg up. Like that's kind of part of the gig. Have you had any, any disasters? I'm not asking you to name names or anything, but have you had any trouble where you're just like, Oh my gosh, this person is not going to work out. Oh, sure. Sure. And I mean, I I remember one that was really early on um, that there were a couple of interns that came by. This is actually back even when I was an assistant and 
you know, like we were with an artist who didn't allow smoking and the guy like was smoking in front of him. And then another guy was offering like production suggestions and stuff like that. And, you know, it was just like, okay, you're gone. You're gone. You're gone. And it was the funny thing was the guy that ended up staying wasn't even supposed to be there. He just wanted to be there because he was into recording and one of his friends was coming. And that guy actually turned out to be a guy who went on to, assist for me for years and is now a successful mastering engineer so you know he was the one that that kept his head down and like did things right and ended up benefiting greatly from it interesting and i'm just jumping around a bit here but i it also in the your wikipedia page which i'm i have my not committed to memory but i remember a couple details uh it said specifically in 1999 he started concentrating on mixing and i'm wondering what what led to that concentration and why not and why specifically mixing as opposed to tracking or producing? First of all, it should be said that I, I really don't know where that Wikipedia page came from. So <laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> so uh, I should probably read it and see what's on it. Um, mixing for me was pretty much luck. I was, uh, I was assisting a couple of really good mixers and doing some small stuff on the side. And, and I ended up doing a, a record um, where they could only afford or they, they only had the time to get the guy who was mixing it for a couple of songs. Or I don't, I don't remember what the, what the reason was, but the producer was going to mix the rest of it himself, except he didn't know how to run the studio, run the console, do any of that stuff. So I just said to him, well, why don't you let me mix a song? It'll be done by the time you get here. If you don't like it, it doesn't matter. You got to mix it anyway. But if you do like it, you know, hey, then we can work on this together or whatever. And he came in and, and listened to my mix and really liked it. And then I got to mix the rest of that record. And then they called me to do another record. And, you know, off, off it went. Just snowballed from there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, I, I just sat down and started going through so, uh, some songs and I'll, and I'll just bring up a couple things that I was checking out this morning and I was just uh, listening on headphones, but I was just like, you know, someday I want to mix as, as, as well as this guy. <laughs> you do a great job, man. Um, well, thank you. I was listening to uh, the Eric Church record, Carolina, mm. Ain't Killed Me Yet and Young and Wild specifically. I listened to that. I listened to Robert Randolph and the Family Band, Ain't Nothing Wrong With That, uh, India Re, um, I think it's called Video. Yeah, I don't think I mixed video. Okay. But that's Brett a great Eld mix. I think that was Pensado, actually. Oh, was it? It may have been, yeah. <laughs> Brett Eldridge, uh -huh. uh, Lose, uh, Lose My Way, my uh, Kenny yeah. Chesney, American Kids. Yep. Cage the Elephant. Aberdeen, uh, yeah. And also Minus the Bear. Yeah, that was very cool. Yeah, they're um, awesome. Such, a, such a, a wide variety of people, wide variety of music and um it, it definitely all had, uh, I found myself not listening to the mix. I found myself listening to the song. And I think that that's, I was just like, what is it about this? And I was like, oh man, I'm tapping my feet. I'm nodding my head. I'm like, wow. And then I started to go in a little deeper in the tones and everything. Um, you know, not to blow smoke up your ass, but I was just really impressed. It was, Thanks. And I mean, obviously these people are too, because they keep, they hire you and, and, I assume keep hiring you. Let's hope so. <laughs> um, all of these songs that I that I mentioned, uh, of course, with the uh, exception of uh, video, uh, the India Re song, were they all mixed uh, there there at your place, or were they? What's the common denominator there? 
besides yourself and your ears, is there an approach in terms of uh, all mixed on an SSL, all mixed in the same room? Anything you can uh, shed some light on? All mixed, all mixed on an SSL. Some of those were nine thousand, and then some of those were um, my four thousand. You know, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's just me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of your uh, of your kind words. That's very that's very nice of you. Um, the uh, the thing that I I like try and get the most of when we're mixing. Um, I I, I kind of key off of emotions. Like I want to feel stuff in the song. And if it's not necessarily like the best sonic thing, but it feels cool or it work, makes the emotions of the song work, like that interests me a lot more than trying to make it sound as good as possible. If something sounds amazing as it is, I don't need to improve it. And if something needs to get destroyed for it to sound cool, I'll I'll go for it. So, you know, yeah, I mean, it's it's that's kind of what you said was kind of my whole my whole approach on mixing is is it's just got to feel good like i want it, i want it to feel good i want to feel something that's that's kind of what i try and go for first and foremost what is the state of tracks when you get them i mean you live in a town that is known for its its very strong ecosystem in terms of music industry right let's just say you know you get the average track i assume it's in relatively good shape well i mean it it's project by project but you know the the quality of the talent in this town the players and the studios and the producers is is pretty insane like you know i mean it's it's uh yeah you get some pretty incredible stuff and i mean do you ever come across stuff that comes out of nashville uh, or that was recorded in nashville that you ever have to do just a complete fix-it job on oh yeah of course you know, it, I mean, it really depends. Sometimes we get all all sorts of stuff, man. I mean, I've done I've done vocals, uh, I've gotten vocals that were sung on the artist bus because the artist is on tour and the record has to be turned in, and they, you know, it's like we got to get this vocal done this week, um, and like so, dude just cuts it on his bus. I can hear the generator running in the background, you know, and that that was how they had to do it, you know, given the fact that recording technology is really portable now you know it's 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 i think even more tempting to just like grab it and go like you grab your you know your ua um little ua interface in your laptop and like a you know a microphone and a mic pre and you know boom you can cut a vocal wherever yeah it's just like every track i heard i was like damn this sounds fantastic this sounds fantastic it all just sounded pro and i was like oh you know i wonder what ratio of stuff he gets that's you know in excellent condition and how much how much of an impact do you have on the production value um of any of those tunes do you are you given any artistic liberties to just go you know what we're going to do this kind of a odd thing that wasn't originally recorded but I'm just going to I'm going to do it and see what they say oh yeah absolutely i do that all the time you know i i mean i just kind of go with what i hear and what feels good and if the client doesn't like it we can always just turn it off, but you might as well take a chance because every once in a while you find something really, really cool. In fact, uh, there was some stuff on that Eric Church record, some transitions between the songs and some things that were just kind of like experiments or us, you know, me just fooling around with something and they ended up liking it and that ended up becoming part of the song on the record. So I just go for whatever I hear and, and um, hopefully everybody doesn't hate it. 
<laughs> and do the producers generally uh, convey to you like, hey, man, we're going for this kind of a thing? And do you have to, you know, kind of adhere to that? Or do they just say, hey, Reed, do your thing, man? It depends. It depends on the producer. Sometimes there's there's a really clear vision on a track and they're like, hey, we really love this. This is kind of where we want it to go. And sometimes they're like, hey, man, I'd love to hear what you do with this. Um, you know, obviously th those records can be more fun as a mixer than, you know, hey, just make the rough sound a little bit better. But, you know, it's it's all part of the job. I mean, mixing mixing is a service industry. It's not a it's not an ego industry. Like you're here to serve the artist and to serve the song and it's their record. So they have to love it at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to hopefully find find something that just makes it a little bit extra special or helps it connect with people a little bit more. Yeah. Let's say in a, in a more mainstream thing like a, a Kenny Chesney song, uh, time spent on, on mixing, what does that involve for you? Like how long does it take to mix a song? Yeah. Um, again, it, it, it's weird. You know, it, it really depends. I, sometimes you think a song's going to be really easy and it's going to take you a couple of hours and it ends up taking forever. And sometimes it's the opposite. Um, all songs are different, but usually when people call me and say, Hey, we want to do a record. I say, okay, well let's budget a day, a song and we'll probably finish early. So some songs take three hours, you know, mm -hmm. some songs take 12 hours or longer. You know, some songs are 300 tracks and some songs are, are less. And then I, I don't, I don't, I don't get what I call the Vance effect where he, he gets to do songs that are like eight tracks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm like, you know, <laughs> damn you. Uh, you know, that would be super awesome. Now, usually I have a lot more than that, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, on average six hours, seven hours, you know, if I start a song, if I start a song at eight or nine in the morning, I'm usually really happy with it by, you know, five or six at night. And uh, as far as revisions are concerned and recalls, uh, are you in a position now where people are so Pro Tools or DAW centric that they assume that, yeah, can't you just pull it up and just make me a quick fix? Or do you, or do you, is your strategy set so that you can or can do that? I can, I can pull it up and make a quick fix and we do it constantly. Mm. Are you just printing stems and out of the SSL or? Not really. Um, I've got a incredibly complicated system that works really well. Um, mm -hmm. It would be unbelievably boring and counterproductive to try and explain it, but it, it, it involves, it's not stems. I, I, I don't, stems don't give me as much control as I want. So it's kind of a hybrid between stems and individual stuff. Like some stuff I print, some stuff runs live. Some stuff is, um, you know, in the box and some stuff is on the desk all the time. And sorry to be vague. It's, it's just hard to, it's hard to explain it without having like an hour conversation. <laughs> and We're just going to have a podcast so just for Reed's setup. Oh, it's so boring. Um, <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I, I recognized a long time ago that, that, you know, sitting around and waiting for people and not being able to do instant recalls isn't, isn't it's not good for me. It's not good for the project. Um, you know, I, I, I value my work and I value my family time too. And, um, like I, I want to balance those things. So a long time ago, I figured out a way to make it work so that we can sit down. Like yesterday, um, we were finishing Eric Pasley's record. We tweaked, you know, 10 or 12 songs in the course of like a couple of hours. 
All right, all right. Reed Shippen here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is this is a great interview so far. I hope you're enjoying this. Um, we're going to take a little time out. I want to mention the Audio Technica promo that's going on for the 40 Series mics. That's, of course, the deal where before the end of the year, if you're going to buy a 40 Series mic, make sure you click on the banner on the Working Class Audio site because if you do that, that'll take you to a page that will explain in clear, plain words how to get a free pair of M50 headphones, which I encourage you to do. Once again, one cannot, cannot argue with free, so make sure you do that. Um, and as I've also mentioned, Nino Michella from Bird and Egg Studios and I have been uh, working over at his place, getting together some samples of acoustic guitar, electric guitar, a male vocal, and drums, uh, drum overhead, and some um, uh, creating samples for you that you can take a listen to uh, we checked out the 4047, the 4060, the 4080, that's the phantom-powered uh, ribbon mic, and the 4033. So uh, make sure you go over to the uh, WCA bonus content, and you'll see underneath that uh, an area where you can download these samples and check them out for yourself. We recorded them at uh, 48K, 24-bit. Uh, we actually recorded them straight through uh, two... Uh, or in some cases, one, uh, Universal Audio 6176 channel strips. We, of course, disengaged the compression and the we, there we applied no EQ. We just did a straight kind of high headroom recording. And all we did uh, to make sure that everything was cool is we made sure everything was somewhat level matched to the best of our ability. It's not all scientific, but it's just to give you a sampling of, of what some of these mics sound like. Uh, drastic differences between them. And depending on the flavor you're looking for, I think uh, this will be somewhat helpful to you to check out. And uh, we definitely were sitting there in the control room looking at each other going, wow, check that out. That's that's pretty amazing. So, um, of course, you know, we're all, you know, we were geeking out, of course, just like any of you would. So um, that's that. Make sure you check out the 40 series samples that uh, Nino and I have created at Bird and Egg. And um, Remember, if you're going to buy a mic, get on over there. Um, you're going to register. You're going to send in your information, and you're going to get a free pair of headphones out of the deal. Do that before December 31st, though, before time runs out. And that's it. All the details are over there at the uh, the link provided on the Working Class Audio site, which is on the right-hand side. And that's it. The Audio-Technica 40 Series promo. That runs till the end of the year. And that's all. So let's get back with Reed Shippen here on the Working Class Audio podcast. You mentioned uh, family. Uh, we do talk a little bit about work-life balance on the show. Um, I'm curious how how that works for you, and are, do you just have you just structured your life so you're like, I got my family time and I got my work time, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're going to be successful in that area, you have to make a deliberate choice to be successful in that area. Um, uh, I used to work 16 hours a day, seven days a week for years and just started to realize that not only was that, I mean, terrible for my relationship and my kids, but also terrible for me. You know, you don't make good decisions when you've been listening to music for 16 hours straight. And you would, I would find myself staying up till four and five in the morning, messing around and come in the next day after getting some rest and being like, what was I doing? That was, that was stupid. You know? So I, decided I wanted to work smarter and not harder and, and just started to kind of 
box the hours down and say, okay, well, this is what I'm mixing. And I get it. I get to the studio pretty early. I want to, I want to like jump on it pretty quick, uh, in the morning and, and work hard. I don't take lunch breaks. I don't do meetings. I don't mess around. Like when I'm in here, I'm here to work. So that's, uh, that's, that's how I do it. I, I, if anytime you have, you're in a business like this and you, and you have kids, like having kids is a commitment to spending time with kids. You know, that's kind of part of the whole deal. So, I, I structure my life so that I can do both. And that involves making some sacrifices. Like I don't work weekends. That's awesome. You know, and, and of course I say that. And then, yes, I will work some weekends. Sometimes there's a deadline. Sometimes, you know, my kids are at ballet and there's nothing to do. So I might as well come in and knock some workout or whatever. But, um, you know, you just kind of, you have to draw the, if you don't make the the box for yourself, you know, something else will make it for you. So since I, I wanted to be my life, it's my box. So I make it the way I want it. Yeah. I, I, I was a little myopic about that in, uh, as after my kids were born and I really just had to turn a corner pretty hard and realize this time is short, you know, uh, when they're young. So yeah. How old are your kids? Uh, seven and nine, two boys. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. How old are yours? I've got, I, I just, I just got a 15 year old, um, like a week ago. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so I have a 15 year old and a 12 year old, both girls. Uh, did the 15 year old come with a warranty? <laughs> yeah, well, so far we haven't we haven't had to exercise it. So oh, okay, or a receipt because you yeah. can't take them back without take a receipt. Back. No. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, you know. I um, with kids and the perspective that I, I hate to, you know, for the people that don't have kids who listen to the show, you know, just tune this out. But it's interesting because it gives you a whole nother perspective on not only the people you deal with, but how you deal with them. And, um, and the things that used to, I get, would get wrapped around the flagpole over just would tweak me out. I just, they just don't tweak me out anymore. I just don't care. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely having kids gives you perspective. Um, and you know, it also makes you realize that this industry is a creative industry. And, you know, for people who really, really care about what they're doing, you get really involved. At least I get really involved emotionally in that. And it's, and it's, it's difficult, but it's probably a good exercise to just try and not take that home with you when you go home, you know? Um, and I fail at that on a regular basis. Um, but it's still, it's still something to strive for, you know, it's, uh, I mean, talk about the work-life balance and you, you know, if you really want to have an interesting conversation, we should talk about the ego work balance. Tell, tell me about that. What's your thought on there? Well, I, I mean, as a mix engineer, basically, uh, I'm I'm I put myself uh, deliberately in the way of having constant criticism. And um, you know, when you work on music and you send it out to people, then they call you back, and what do they say? They say, oh, "I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this." And, uh, and you know, that can be really difficult on the ego until you actually figure out that the reason why they're calling you in the first place is because they trust you to do something good. You know, you don't need to, uh, you don't need to hear from them all the time that you're good at what you do. If, you know, they wouldn't be calling you if you weren't. So you have to get over the fact that, um, sometimes it just sounds like all you're getting is criticism. It's very difficult as a human, like your ego kicks in and, you know, your pride and your emotions and all that stuff. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's just kind of part of the gig to, to figure that out. Yeah. Nothing, uh, strikes the ego down, like sending out a mix that you think is, you know, you feel on top of the world about, and then you get the bullet point list. It's, you know, a mile long and you're like, oh yeah. You get the novella. 
Um, and, and that's, yeah, that's, that's something that I think everybody who's in a creative endeavor needs to hear that. And also the other thing that everybody in a creative endeavor needs to hear is that I think pretty much everyone who's creative harbors the secret fear that sooner or later someone's going to wake up and figure out that they don't know what they're doing at all. And that's <laughs> going to be the end of it. Like they're going to be like one day they're going to be like, you know what? Shippen doesn't even know a single thing about what he's doing. He's totally been faking it the whole time. Like let's never call him again. And my, you know, and like my career will be over on Tuesday or Wednesday, or I don't even know what day it is. Um, so, and, and every, I think every creative person on the planet, feels that so once you acknowledge that then you're like okay this is just normal and let's move on yeah but there's the, the the other aspect of it too where you hear other people's work like this morning me putting on the headphones you know and sitting and listening to the stuff you mixed i'm just like damn i want to mix that well like oh, well, that's very kind of you it, no i you know i just i just think i hear it and i go that's how it should be but sometimes Depending on, you know, the, for the listeners, I mean, they may be challenged by uh, what's available in the pool, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, I was just talking to a friend of mine about this at breakfast. It's first of all, you have to have a great song. If you don't have a great song, nothing else matters. You know, if the song sucks, it doesn't matter how good the drumming is. It doesn't matter how good everything sounds it doesn't matter it nothing matters if the song's not great who cares so you know part of the part of the beauty of being at uh, a certain level doing professional music is you know by and large you're getting great songs all the time um you know that's a huge part of it it's 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 tough to make something that's not a great song sound great it's the old polish the turd analogy you know mm -hmm. um and then uh and that's only one part of it. And then you start to look at the at the the parts of the recordings and you know, the people playing on it make a huge difference. And I I tell stories about there was one time I was tracking something and the guy who was playing bass on it was really good. Like a really good bass player and, and you know, everything was going fine. And we took a break and during the break, this this uh this guy named Tommy Sims, who's who's a ridiculously good bass player, like unbelievably good bass player he just came in and we were hanging out and talking and he picked up the guy's bass because it was just sitting there and just started fooling around on it and all of a sudden the tone was a thousand times better you know and it was like oh well i thought i had a good bass tone but i guess it's really in the fingers it's not necessarily you know i mean you gotta have good engineering obviously but man like an amazing player makes an amazing difference even on the same instrument you know yeah. You're echoing exactly what Matt Wallace, uh, do you know Matt Wallace? Oh, yeah. Do you know his work? Matt Wallace was just uh, on a couple episodes ago and he just said, you know what? Uh, you can have a beautiful drum set and have a shitty drummer. Doesn't matter. It's not, not going to work. Have yep. a shitty drum set and a fantastic player. It's totally going to work. Yep. He also said something uh, in his episode that really struck a chord with a lot of people. And he said, what you record is more important than how you record it. Yeah, that's a corollary, basically, of what we were just talking about, I think. It gets back to a great song. Yeah. Gotta have a great song. I want to switch gears for a minute and just talk a little business. As I've said, Nashville is a, is a, is a great ecosystem for music. A lot of very talented people there. Yep. And I would assume that what people are paid there varies, of course. But uh, 
as far as you know what you charge you know for a mix do you charge by the day does that work best for you or do you charge by the mix i charge i charge by the mix like if again it all depends it depends on what the project is and and how fast they need it and all that stuff but generally i charge a fee for mixing it and then i'll charge uh like a day rate for the studio and my assistant and stuff like that but since i basically do a song a day ish you know it all it all kind of works out to like one rate more or less as my account likes to tell me i'm i'm terrible at billing and um you know we'll constantly underbill people and should probably knock that off <laughs> and obviously you're dealing with a lot of labels uh-huh and do you encounter a lot of like you know getting paid in 60 days 90 days 120 day situations yeah, I mean, you can run into stuff like that. By and large, the the major labels are are pretty good. I mean, they've got a team of people who are pretty on top of keeping things rolling. And as long as you put things in the context that they understand, uh, you know, and and can approve, it goes it goes pretty fast. But I, I mean, I I try not to sweat too much about money because it's a stress that you can't. Like if you're billing somebody and you're worrying about when they're going to pay you, it's a stress that you can't really control. So, I mean, there's so many other things to stress out about, uh, <laughs> you know, that I, I just maybe kind of avoid that one as much as humanly possible. How did you arrive at the rate that you did for yourself? I don't know. That's a really good question. I have no idea. I think it. I think I, I was working on a record and the producers, the producer. Um, said, hey, man, you know what? You should be making this for this record. I was like, okay, so that's what I made for that record. And then the next person that called me said, well, how much do you charge? And I said, well, this is this is the rate I did on this record. And they were like, okay, cool. You know, um, it's, uh, it's interesting. On some of these things, like, you know, there's obviously there's, there's always someone trying to negotiate a rate and, um, you know, conversations about money are obviously never easy and it's not something that creatives like to like to dwell on but you know there's also a a a section of the music population where they're like hey we want you to do this record what do you charge i charge this great book it done you know because they're coming to you because they want what you do and and you know i i I never try and rake anybody over the coals on rate and you know it's uh it's not all that difficult. And maybe I've just been lucky. I don't know. The point thing always uh, puzzles me that I guess, you know, in my mind, I'm I'm still thinking, you know, the major labels are diminishing and, and maybe that is, is true or maybe it's not. But in the world of country music, I think uh, they seem to be surviving. And to get a point on a record or, you know, a couple points, uh, that just seems like fantasy land from, from my perspective. But... I'm I'm not dealing with uh, the same situations you are. So, well, to be honest, um, a lot of major label records they'll just say no to a point. And when you really look into the realities of the accounting for that and dealing with all those shenanigans, I mean, pretty much points don't pay anymore. And that's probably another hour long conversation. But there, there's there's a million different ways you can. That a that a um, uh, a label can uh, manipulate 
the way because you, your points are paid like the artist points and there's a million different ways that the artist has to like pay back the label and deal with that and long story short is a lot of times you don't see any money on points i see more money on independent projects on points than i do on label projects and doing independent records i think where where like points or percentage of publishing or ownership of masters or everything I mean, really does come into play because at some point, you know, if someone's like, hey, man, will you do my record and can you do this for like 20 bucks a song? You have to go, yeah, but if you want me to share the risk, you should share the reward. You know, I mean, I think it actually plays into the indie stuff even more than it plays into the major label stuff. Do you have a uh, or have you had in the past a business mentor, somebody that you talk business with and and try to make make sense of it all? No, I mean, just just peers. I, I, I have a, I have a business manager, which, um, you know, who deals with, uh, taxes and bookkeeping and stuff like that. And, um, he's really smart and, and, uh, you know, he's a great guy to talk to, but I mean, I, I do have mentors. I have, I have peers and mentors that I can go to and, and, and talk about stuff, but there's not really one primary person. Kind of a little back to the artistic side for a second. Uh, mixing wise, who who do you look up to for mixing? Who who do you listen to and go, damn, oh, I love man. that? There's so many cool people out there. Um, Vance, I mean, I, I love I love Vance's stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's a he's badass. just got a whole other take on it that you just the the new record, uh, the Traveler. Holy shit! Yeah. No, I mean he's he's killer. Uh, there's you know, I always, I always hesitate to make these lists because I always feel like I, I leave someone out and like, I feel bad about that, but just also off the cuff, you know, there's a couple guys that are, that are like, like they've done stuff where you're just like, okay, dude, you're, you know, like, I, I'll, I will worship you forever because of stuff like Joshua Judges Ruth, Massenberg's Joshua Judges Ruth record that he did with Lyle Lovett. I mean, that stuff is spectacular cla cla is such a badass rock mixer and and you know like the um the american idiot record was just like are you kidding me um just <laughs> fantastic his brother tom was you know a very early influence you know the the live throwing copper stuff and um you know was just ridiculous the steve winwood stuff that he did back in the day was was incredible um Serban gaina is is like a total sweetheart of a guy and just like an incredible pop mixer you know, uh, Manny's fantastic. Pensado's fantastic. I love Mark Spike Stent. Um, uh, Jesus, who's um? Oh man, I'm spacing. There's this killer. There's a killer guy who lives out in Seattle. Goodmanson, John, John, Goodmanson? John Goodmanson. Yeah, I think he's a complete badass. Uh, not only for all like the really cool records that he does, but um, he did uh, this this first Owl City record that. Everybody loved to hate, but I thought it sounded. I thought it changed the way pop music sounded. I thought it sounded phenomenal. He mixed it. Ted Jensen mastered it. Just crushed it. Uh, it was great. Like um, Randy Staub is fantastic. Um, oh yeah. Uh, my buddy Ryan Hewitt is killer and has done great work. And Andrew Sheps has done really really cool stuff. Um, now, just just stopping you for a sec on Andrew. Now, doesn't it just blow your shit out of the water when Andrew's like, "Oh yeah, I mixed that in the box on a laptop." Yeah, I mean that's fantastic. I I I I envy that. And Andrew, if you're listening, just send me your sessions, man. I want to see what you're doing. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, 
Yes and no. I mean, I think Andrew's getting some pretty incredibly awesome stuff. It's been my experience that um, I, I lean on analog for uh, certain colors, certain sounds, but also for triage. Like if you need to fix something, analog works really, really well for fixing something. If something's not broken, you know, it's like, cool. Well, then I don't I don't really need to mess with it that much. So, you know, I don't know. I I, uh, I haven't figured out how to do what I like on a laptop with a pair of headphones yet. <laughs> and as soon as you do, will you be sitting at home doing it? Man, you know what? I don't know. I mean, I, I like I like going to the studio and and um you know, I I I like I have a lot of gear and I I like using it and I like the colors that it brings, but I'm not I don't want to be precious about it either and just be like, "No, this is the only way to do it because it's not the only way to do it." You know, one of the challenges I find is I do jump around genres a lot. So some stuff I'll do all digital. Um, uh, In fact, like some very specific stuff I have to do digitally. Like I'll do stuff for uh, Disney that's big orchestration plus pop production. And the turn into Disney isn't a stereo mix. It's like 32 stereo stems. So the only way to do it is to do it digitally. Um, And then what I'll do is if I need to use the analog stuff that I want, I'll just print it and, you know, and then do the rest of it digitally. Well, that's a whole nother ball of wax there, Disney Disney work. Yeah, that's that's something that I haven't done a, a ton of, like five or six projects, but it's uh yeah, it's it's a uh it's a different thing. It's a different animal. Do you get your work primarily word of mouth or is there somebody actually advocating on your behalf? Word of mouth. And they just give you a call and just say, Hey man, do your thing. Yeah, I mean I guess people hear stuff that that you've done that they like and you know, it goes from there. And as far as your studio, uh, Robot Lemon, correct? Yeah. Um, is this a, that's where you're at currently. Is this a building, um, attached to your house? Um, no, it is, it is a, it is a building attached to a house. (laughs) Oh, okay. Very Nashville. Yeah. But it's a purpose, Uh, it's a purpose built mix room. And, uh, is that, uh, something that, uh, you've been in for a long time? About six years. Do you rent or is that something that you've, uh, you've, purchased over time i i actually uh i own this well the bank owns it yeah the bank owns this and allows me to stay here as long as i continue paying them um yeah you know when i uh for the longest time i was working in commercial studios and i figured out pretty early on that i didn't like moving from studio to studio because i didn't like guessing what i was doing and not knowing how it would turn out so i kind of turned into a residency guy and i was at one place for like five or six years. And then I was at another place for like five or six years, like one room literally kind of taking it over. And then the opportunity came up for me to move into a place of my own. And I've been here since. And as far as your staff, I mean, you've got a couple people working for you, it seems, right? I do. Um, And that's been, that goes back to the work-life balance because I can do all of this myself, but if I want to be a good husband and be a good father and, and be available, I need to take some of that pressure off of me, you know? So I, I decided to make the sacrifice of having a full-time assistant and paying a full-time assistant so that I could spend my time mixing. And when I wasn't mixing, you know, I could be doing other businesses or, 
um, being at home with my family and not sitting here like printing versions or like setting up songs or cleaning vocals or stuff like that. My final question really has to do with uh, a little bit of gear, and that is, tell me about this power supply that <laughs> you're atomic. involved with. Uh, what's what's that all about, man? Basically, that came about because I, you know moved out of a regular recording studio and moved into my own studio. And then all of a sudden, you know, everything was my responsibility and we live in Tennessee and there's lots of thunderstorms and the, you know, power grid's a little shady. It's better now, but it used to be kind of shady. And I just got sick of repairing power supplies. So I kind of started looking around for someone who like I, my personality is such that like, there's gotta be a better way to do this. Right. You know, and I asked around and everyone's like, no, there isn't. And I found one guy who said, yeah, there is. I think we can do this a better way. And that guy was this this guy named Norman, this genius um, uh, designer who lives up in Detroit. And he and I started talking and he had some ideas and we took the idea and kind of like hammered on it and tested it and listened and tested and changed it and came up with a really great power supply to run SSLs, you know, and it takes a lot of stress out of running an SSL because it protects the board at all costs. You know, it runs a lot more efficiently. It runs a lot less electricity. It runs a lot less heat. And as a, as a completely unintended consequence, the desk sounds better and it's a lot, uh, there's the noise floors lower. So that was kind of a win because honestly, I just wanted something that was reliable that, that I didn't have to worry every time I came into the studio, if the, one of the power supplies was smoked. So uh, I just did it for me, and then Norman and I were like, "Well, maybe we should sell this to some other people because you know, if you you know if you want it and it's beneficial, you know, maybe some other people will want it." And next thing we know, we had a company selling power supplies for SSLs and now Neves. That's the story. That's cool. What's the what's the company called? Atomic Instrument. Of course, you know SSLs are known for um, jacking up the electric bill, so. Is it to help with that? Oh, yeah. It, it helps with the electric bill. It helps with the cooling bill. And, you know, it's uh, it helps with peace of mind. So that's kind of a win all around. And then, you know, we started getting some really cool people using it. And we, now, we've, you know, Bob Clearmountain has one. Tom Lord Algae has one. Tom Elmhurst has one. Um, like, you know, some really awesome people, both in the, in the United States and around the world, have been running it. And, you know, it's been it's been really nice. I, I uh um, I'm happy that we can put something out there that that Norman and I can both say, hey, we know this is a fantastic supply. We like I trust it. I mix records every day. I wouldn't use it if it wasn't better. And, you know, like so now I feel OK saying to someone, you know, you should buy this because it is better. Hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah. We'll put a link on the website for sure. Oh, cool. Thank you. Well, this has been great, man. I, I uh, appreciate your time and, and really, uh, respect your work. And I'm going to dig a little deeper into it and, uh, see what I can learn from it. See what I could steal from you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an open book. Steal away. Excellent read. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it, man. Thanks, Matt. It, it's really nice to e-meet you. <laughs> and, uh, um, this was really, this was really fun. I know. Like, or yeah, virtually, virtually make your acquaintance. Yeah, totally. Thanks again, Reed. And, and you take care and, uh, be in touch. Thanks, Matt. It was really fun doing this. Have a really good night. All right, man. Take care. Bye. Reed Shippen on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. That was fantastic. 
man, I tell you, I could just sit here and talk all day and ramble about stuff. But of course, we do run out of time and you don't have all the time in the world. And neither do I. So there's that music right there telling us we are out of time. And that music also tells us that that's Cliff Truesdell. And our voiceover at the top, that's Chuck Smith. Cole Williams, of course, helping out with social media and some audio support. And of course, Gearsluts.com, Audio Technica, Universal Audio. And of course, you taking the time to listen. I appreciate it. Talk to you next time. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 